have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 127. 127. We're going to talk about children. It says, a psalm or a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. These are the words of God speaking through Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. You can have a seat. So we've looked at men, we've looked at women. Next week we're going to hear about how the church should respond to the uh, particular issue of abortion. Today I want to talk about children. Whenever a man and a woman come together, eventually they're going to be children. So we need to understand how we should think about children. How should a Christian think about children? We have children all over the place. They're, they're, they're making noise. They're moving around. They're dropping things. They're active. That's, that's just children, okay? That, that's not a Christian perspective. That's just a human being perspective. Children make noise. Children move around. Um, we love children. But we need to know how a Christian understands the topic of, of children because our culture is saying something different than what God's Word says. The culture says many different things. On one extreme, you have the people who say, when it comes to children, don't have any. Whatever you do, don't have any children. I have an article right here uh, written by a woman named Holly Brockwell or about a woman named Holly Brockwell. And the heading of the article says, Woman in her 20s wants to be sterilized. Having a baby would be my worst nightmare. She says, I've made the request to be sterilized every year since I was 26. I'm now 29. She says, I just want to know I'm permanently safe from my worst nightmare, getting pregnant. She says, I was at my home when my little brother and sister were young and I've seen how much drudgery was involved. Non-stop cooking, washing, cleaning. For some, that work, work is completely worth it. And I have nothing but respect for people who slave away day and night to give their children a good life. I think it's interesting that a mother is, is a slave if she, if she raises her children. 
This is not uncommon. More and more young people are saying, we, we want the experience of, of sex, of course, outside of marriage, without any, any consequences. So let's just sterilize ourselves. That way we don't have to worry about the, the curse of children. And then more and more are saying, well, even when we do get married, we don't want that coming into our lives. We want to live for ourselves. She even says in the article, um, she hears women saying, my kids are my life. And I shudder. I want my own life. I want a career, money, time, energy. I want to be Holly, not mummy. I want to be able to travel and say yes to opportunities without worrying about school catchment areas or babysitters. And the article says this kind of ideology is widely supported among pro-abortion activists because children are seen as a curse, something you want to avoid at all costs. Others, not quite extreme, say, well, at least put them off. Just wait. Get all your fun out of the way because once you have them, it's just downhill from there. You're trapped. It's no, there's no more fun. Get it, get, get it out of the way. Get your Even Christians, get your ministry out of the way. Do your mission trips. Have your fun because once you have kids, there's no more of that. Others say, it's okay to have kids, but please don't have any more than you can afford. Others say, this goes into the abortion debate, well, they're not living beings until they're born. Then they're a human being. And, and that's actually being changed to where now people are wanting to say, you could actually kill a child into you know, two or three years old. Because they believe that children are less valuable than other human beings because they're younger. Remember, they, they see value as attributed to duty and job. And if they can't do a job, if we find out a kid is going to have uh, Down syndrome, we're going to have some sort of uh, malfunction, well, they're not going to be as valuable as another human being, so why not just off them now? Well, and then when they're 80 or 90 and they have dementia or they have another disease, why not just off them then too? They're useless to society. They're just a burden. That's what culture is saying. In a 2013 address, Dr. Vodi Bakum made this connection. And if you haven't seen this video of him speaking on abortion, I would recommend it. He makes this connection. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head. He promised, number one, you're going down. You will receive the death blow. And number two, there will be offspring. There will be a seed. God promised, he, he made sure that Satan knew and those Adam and Eve who were there knew there will be a seed war starting in the beginning. And then he says in Genesis chapter 4, Satan fires the first shot. The seed of the serpent kills the seed of the woman, the godly seed. Cain kills Abel. In 1 John chapter 3, Verses 7 through 10, we read this. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, that is the seed of God, makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Cain killed Abel. The seed of the serpent killed the seed of God. Seed war from the very beginning. Then it come, we come to Abram. And God promises Abram a seed. He says, through your seed, through your offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Then we get to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tries to kill all of the Hebrew boys. Later on in the New Testament, Herod tries to kill all of the male children two years and under to, to rid the world of the Savior. And when Jesus is born, the seed of the woman is in the world. He comes to crush the head of the serpent in His life, His death, His resurrection, and in His ascension on our behalf. And, and Dr. Bauckham says, quote, abortion is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Now I'm going to take it one step further. I would, I would agree, abortion is spiritual warfare. That's not something we just come into the picture and say, well, let me tell you how, how cool my children are. Can't you see them? Why would you want to? That's not going to work. It's spiritual. We must battle with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We must battle with the Gospel. But I'm going to take it one step further. All seed war is spiritual warfare. Whether it is to kill an unborn child before birth, after they are born, or just to have a general disdain for them prior to conception. These are all tactics of Satan to overthrow the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's glory. That's what God said do. Satan wants to stop it. So we have to have a biblical worldview our perspective of children cannot be adopted from culture. Sadly, our perspective of children cannot be even adopted from our parents most of the time because we are all products of our society. We must get our outlook from Scripture. We have to ask ourselves, what does God's Word say and what does it not say? And am I thinking in a way that is contrary to what the Bible says? And if I'm thinking in a way contrary to what the Bible says, I'm wrong and God is right. Now, we would agree with that almost everywhere else, but when it comes to children, a lot of times we, get, we begin to, to, to falter. We, we begin to lose our ground. You know why? I'll tell you, I'm going to just clear it up, because it messes with our wallets. That's the problem. It messes with our billfolds. Psalm 127 paints the most vivid picture for us regarding our outlook on children. This is a song of ascent. This was a song that the Jews would have sang as they were traveling to Jerusalem to worship. Three times a year, Jews from all over the area would travel into Jerusalem to worship for the feasts. There were three required feasts they had to go to Jerusalem. The Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Passover. And so when they would travel into Jerusalem, they would sing 15 different psalms on their way into Jerusalem. And these were uplifting and happy and joyful songs because they were so excited to be able to go into the city of God and worship there in the temple of God and be there in the presence of God's people. 
So we look at this psalm. And this, it, it's very strange how this psalm parallels two different pictures and paints this idea of how we should think of children. In the first verse, we see first a lesson for the builder. Solomon writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Think of all that goes into building a house in, in our day. It was harder back in their day. There, there may not have been so many details, but it was harder. But think about all the details that go into building a house. Men may understand this more than women. Think of all that goes into it. You've got you to grade your lot to get it level. You've got to get your plumbing lines in so that you'll have water. You've got to dig your footers and your foundation to get the foundation laid. Once that hardens and is level, then you start building your frame. You start framing up your walls and you're measuring your walls, framing your walls up. You're measuring, you're getting your angles right. You're hammering or you're screwing or you're putting things together, however you, you do that. Then you're going to put more plumbing inside those walls. You're going to run some ductwork through the walls. You're going to put insulation in the walls. You're going to finish the walls, paint the walls, hang your cabinets, put in your flooring, your countertops, your lighting, your trim work. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds unless He comes in with His blessing, with His guidance, with His wisdom, unless He holds all things together, unless His sustaining hand upholds the work. In other words, unless it is according to His eternal divine decree that this labor prosper and stay, those who build it labor in vain. Now, they will build it. They're working. They're building they will work, they will sweat, they will plan, they will put all the effort into it, but it's all in vain. It's, it's worthless. It's pointless. It's futile. And here's why. Because God labors in accordance with His own decreed will, His secret will. And if He does not choose to bless that work, to come alongside it and, and hold it together, then if you're, you're working contrary to His will, and if He doesn't choose to help you, then it's because it's not His will to do so. So, if you labor contrary to this, you're laboring contrary to God Himself. So all your work is, is for naught. It's for nothing. It's going to waste away. It's going to perish. It's in vain. All of their planning efforts will have been spent in opposition to God without even knowing it. Because we can't know His secret will. All we have is this, his, his written, revealed will. And we have Jesus. We don't know His secret will, so all of their labor will have been in opposition to God, and at the end of the day, the labor will, will be worthless because none can stay His hand or thwart His plan. Every house that stands, stands according to God's will. And every house that falls, falls according to God's will. Whether it's an earthquake, a volcano, a flood, a tornado, you name it. If that house falls, it falls because for the foundation of the world, God said that house will fall. God is sovereign. So there's a lesson for the builder. Then we move and we look at a lesson for the watchman. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
Now, this is the same scenario, except now we're looking at a different job. The duty of a watchman. His job would have been to stand on the city wall and to watch for approaching enemies, or would-be attackers. But this says, unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord is the ultimate watchman, unless He is the, the first and last line of defense, the ultimate protector, unless it is God's desire to see that city through the night, that city will not make it through the night. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Notice, he does stay awake. And he watches all night. He does his job well because his city depends on him. And his brothers in arms, they depend on his shout or his trumpet blast to let them know that an enemy is coming. So he does watch. He keeps a diligent watch. He, he fights off sleep. He keeps himself awake when in, 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 the, in the night watch, in the late hour. He, he battles to adjust his eyes to the darkness, to try to tell the difference between a, a rustle in the bush, a wild animal, or a spy. He does the work, but if the Lord has declared that on this night, this city must be overthrown, nothing this watchman does is going to be enough to keep this city from falling. No amount of vigilance is enough. No warning shout will be early enough or clear enough or loud enough. No attacker will be so small. No, no city or no other army will be so insignificant as to be foiled by this city that the Lord has devoted to destruction because God has the final say. God is sovereign. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who are the watchmen stays awake in vain. Then in verse 2, we have a summary of these two lessons. We'll put them together. The concept of the idea is this. God is sovereign and God is provider. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. God, speaking through the psalmist, Solomon now speaks to the builder and he speaks to the watchman and he speaks to anyone else who would embark on any labor under the sun apart from the divine providence of God on their side and he says it's in vain. It's all worthless. It's futile. It's pointless. It is to no good benefit. It helps you come to no good end. No matter how hard you try, you are incapable of producing any good fruit, in the end, you will fail. It is all in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. This is just a long day's work. You get up early. You stay up late. You, you make the most of the daylight and then some. You've planned it out. See, you know I've got to get... Steps 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 complete today, and it's going to take me this long, and so I've got to get up early, I've got to work all day, and I've got to stay up late to finish it all. You've planned it out, you've, you've mapped it all out in your mind, but it's all worthless. You, you gain nothing. It's all futile. Now, you might at the end of the day be able to stand and point at all of the different earthly toys, all of the pictures of the places you've been, 
and say, look at all of the things I've afforded, all of the things I've been able to do. It, it has not been in vain. But that's from your perspective. God says it's futile, it's in vain, it's worthless. It means nothing. The moment you die, it will have been for nothing because you have labored outside of the sanction of God. You've worked apart from His endorsement. You didn't seek His ways. You didn't seek God. You relied on your own ability to build. You, you relied on your own ability to, to see well in the dark. And God said, tonight, this city is required. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter all of the labor that you put into it. Now we say to this, but we can't know His secret will. How are we to know what God wants? You're right, we don't know His secret will. So we'll come back to that later. What do we do? It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Bread in the Bible is, is symbolic of... of um, Oftentimes it's not symbolic, it's just bread. But other times it's symbolic of your basic necessities. Food, drink, clothing, shelter. The things that you have, to, you have to have to live. And eating the bread is just living off of what you've earned, you've worked. Living off of your labors. And so when he says, eating the bread of anxious toil, he's, he's describing all of your, your time spent struggling and working and and laboring in anxiety, trusting in your own abilities apart from considering God's will. This is what we do. We work apart from God's will. This is what we have to understand. Ultimately, God is sovereign over all of your plans, all of your work, all of your dreams, all of your goals. He's, he's, all, it's, he's in control over every bit of it. And the problem is that some of you, some of us, I could say, can barely sleep at night because you're so worried about your finances, you're so worried about your job, you're so worried about your plans, you're so worried about your goals, that you can't rest, you can't sleep. And, and you want to know, why am I like this? Why am I plagued with this? Why can I not let my mind rest from all of the things that I have going on and the answer is because you've never stopped to examine them in light of what God has said. Because if God has said it, we know it's good, so we just do what He says and we know it's going to be alright, but we don't do that. We do our own thing and then we're left to just sit and fret and worry in our own puddle of self-pity and self-anxiety. And if you're doing this, you're, you're not living according to a biblical worldview. You're living according to a secular worldview where you are the captain of your ship. In your mind, you're thinking, gain, 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 gain. I've got to get more. I've got to make more. I've got to get to the next level. Now, if we were to ask you, how do you feel about the sovereignty of God? You would say, oh, sovereignty, oh, sovereignty. Love sovereignty. Love the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty, I'm, I'm down with the, the sovereignty. But you can't rest in it. If you can't rest in God's sovereignty, then you don't believe in it. Because you think that nothing can happen unless you plan it and you execute it the way you want it to happen. But His Word says, He gives to His beloved sleep. God provides sleep. God provides rest for His people. God's people 
rest in His sovereignty. This is a doctrine of, of comfort and joy. How good it is to know He's in control of every bit of it. To rest assured that God has it all covered. I'm often asked at my job, they say, what do you think, Paul? And I say, it's going to be all right. And they say, are you sure? And I say, I'm absolutely sure. It's going to be all right. I, I, I never fret. I don't worry. I don't have to worry. I know it's going to be all right. Now, this is not some naive, apathetic laziness, some type of hyper-Calvinism hyper, uh, hyper that says, well, God's in control, so I'll just sit here and do nothing. If He's going to do it, He's going to do it. Or I'm going to walk out in front of a car. If He's going to kill me, He's going to kill me. And if He wants me to live, He'll let me live. No, Jesus would say, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We don't do that. We live according to God's commands. God's people obey God's commands and they leave the things outside of God's commands to God because they believe He's sovereign. So, and we move on to our next concern. The parallel teaching of this psalm. How should we think about children? In verse 3 we read the biblical truth concerning children. Behold, look, check it out. Get a load of this everybody. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Heritage. An inheritance. A hereditary gift. Or hereditary property. A birthright. In other words, they are yours. The children are yours. They're coming to you, a heritage from the Lord. This is the point. Three words. God gives children. That's the main idea. God gives children. This is not just some physical happening. We see animals, they produce offspring. We see flowers, they produce offspring. We see people, they produce offspring. It just happens. It's just, this is the natural way of thinking. That's not the truth. God gives them. They are a heritage from the Lord. Now, on the flip side, there are some people, every time you see a picture of their child, this is my miracle baby. No, your baby is not a miracle. Children are born every single day all over the world. By definition, that's not a miracle. Children are not a miracle. They are gifts from God. Now we know this to be true. We go back to week one. God's design for human beings. Even in procreation, we play a part in that. Y'all know that. A guy all alone in the desert will never procreate. A woman in the desert all alone will never procreate. We have to do something. We participate in procreation. But even in our participation, God is ultimately at the helm. We all know this. God gives children, and we believe that to be true. If you have children, you receive them from God. And the opposite is also true. Now, we've got to think about this in light of the fall. Adam and Eve didn't have children before the fall. It was after the fall that they had children. We have to think in light of the fall. Okay? If you do not have children, it's because God has not given children. And we have to remember that the fall and sin's entrance into the world has ravaged the bodies of men, have, has ravaged the bodies of women, has, have, has ravaged society. And I'm, I'm not ignorant or, or unacquainted with those effects. 
If you have children, they're from God. If you do not have children, it is because God has not given them. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Then he says, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Fruit of the womb. Another word for children. A, A descriptive picture of children being produced from a mother's womb are a reward. They are the word is, is literally means payment or wages. Now, when we think hear that, it's not that you earned your children. And so we can see, okay, the Duggars, they're really godly people. And these people over here, they've never had children and they've been trying forever. They are sinful. That's not the picture here. The word should could better be understood as, as a gracious bestowal of something. Listen to this from Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Same word, reward. Now we know Abram was not called by God or brought into covenant by God because he was good. Abram was a pagan. He worshipped a false god when God found him. This was a gracious bestowal of covenant. In Genesis 33, listen to this. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Graciously given. Y'all know the story of Jacob? Four wives got into a a, a baby-having contest to see who could have the most because back then they found their identity in who could have the most children. So he married the wrong woman because she was good looking. And so then they start going back and forth. See, he was all about Rachel. Rachel didn't have any children. Leah started popping them out. So then they start going back and forth. Here's my handmaid. Here's my handmaid. I'm going to trade some fruit for your handmaid. I mean, it's, it's and 13 kids. Who are all these? Oh my goodness, you should have heard the... Have I not told you about this mess? These women, they're, going to this, they're, they're buying me. They're, they're, I'm, a, I'm basically being... My body's being sold to have children. That's not what he says. These are the children God has graciously given your servant. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 11, Moses is explaining the blessings that the children of Israel will receive if they if they hold on and maintain the terms of the covenant that He's made with them. It says, And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Now think about that in an agrarian society. You will prosper in animals, you will prosper in the fruit of the ground, your grains, your vegetables, and you will prosper in children. Imagine a farmer saying, No, no, not animals. Not meat and clothing. No, not food, God. Please, no. The same would be understood or or misunderstood. They said, no, not children. They saw all three of these together as a lump sum of blessings. A gracious bestowal. This is the truth about children. They come from God and they are a gracious blessing from God. Verse 4, we see an analogy from battle. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Warriors fight. 
Warriors need weapons. Without a weapon, a warrior is a, a man in a funny outfit in, a, in the wrong place at the wrong time, surrounded by a bunch of dangerous men. But with his weapon, with his bows and his arrows, he's effective. He becomes a warrior. Arrows make the warrior a warrior. They are necessary for him to be useful. They make him what he is. The point is, for a warrior, arrows are not just beneficial, they are necessary. Two things. A warrior and his arrows, they go together. They simply are right for one another. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. That is, children born to you when you are young. They're good. They're right. They're proper. It just goes together. Young married couple, children. And just as an aside, it does say children, plural. It's just assumed you will have at least two. Our culture treats children like they're a burden. Put them off until you're finished with all your fun. God's Word says, youthfulness and children go together like a warrior and his weapon. Then in verse 5 we see the truly blessed man. The blessed man. Now we read Psalm 1 for a reason. Because when I describe to you the man in Psalm 1, you got to love the law of the Lord. And we think, oh man, I'm going to get into my Bible study and I'm going to read, I'm going to learn, I'm going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. Oh, I'm going to study. I'm going to read three epistles tomorrow morning before I go to work. Because I want to be the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers because I want to delight in the law of the Lord. I'm going to meditate on it day and night. Every time you find me, I'm going to have a Bible with me because I want to be the blessed man. And then we read this, blessed is the man who fills his quiver full of children. We say, well, I don't want blessedness that much. Don't give me that blessedness. It's the same word. It's the same concept. So how come blessedness is good when it fills up our brains, but blessedness is not good when it starts messing with our wallet? And costing us time and money. Blessed. Happy. This, this state of true inner bliss. In the Proverbs, godly wisdom leads to blessedness. Elsewhere in Scripture, your relationship with God means blessedness. Inner joy and happiness that nothing can take away. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver full of them. So now we go back to the arrow warrior analogy. Now, I'm not talking of a specific number. This is where people get hung up. And they say, well, in the Bible times, the quiver was exactly this big, and so you could fit this many arrows if they were this diameter. That's not the point. Because here's why. As soon as you get hung up on a number, a low number or a high number, you are automatically building your house apart from the Lord. The point is, God gives them, not you. God gives blessings. We are not the blessors. We are the recipients of blessings. Then in verse, end of verse 5, we see the benefit of this fruitfulness. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now in this time period, the gate, the city gate, was the municipal gathering place. The, the courthouse, the judge's bench, the, the 
tag office, everything. You wanted city work done, you wanted to get a document signed, you wanted to accuse somebody of something, you went to the city gate. And that's where the elders of the city would gather to oversee all of the the happenings of the city. And so the picture here is that a man has come to the city and his enemy is accusing him of something there in front of everybody. And and there might be a skirmish. They they might go, go at it right here. This man's not worried. He's not ashamed. He's not backing down. You know why? Because he's got a quiver full of boys behind him that he had when he was young. As as we would say, he's rolling deep. Not rolling in the deep, but rolling deep. He's not ashamed. He's not afraid. Now back then, you get 12 12 and 15-year-old boys could probably take out any of us because they knew how what being a man was. They worked from an early age. They had become a band of companions that knew how to take care of old dad no matter what. They were a family. They were best friends. So how do we make the parallel here? What in the world do buildings and cities have to do with children? What we see here is that God is ultimately sovereign. And when we rest in His providence in every detail of our lives, He will provide exactly what we need at exactly the right moment. And your labors to provide for yourself are worthless. And that includes your family planning. In the Bible, the term house is often used synonymously with family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, what do we know to be true from this passage? God is sovereign. God gives children. God are a gracious, or children are a gracious gift. That's what we read here in this passage. What do we know from previous weeks? We've all affirmed everything we've heard previous to this, so we can't, we, we can't go back now and change it now that it comes to our children. God is the author of life. It's God's job to dictate when life begins, and when life ends. We are created in God's image and for God's glory, and we display God's glory most when we obey His commands. So what has He commanded? There are no commands in this psalm. What has He commanded? We know He's told us to train them up, to teach them, to not provoke them to wrath. What else has God commanded in His Word concerning children? Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Creation ordinance. If we believe marriage is one man and one woman for life because it's a creation ordinance, if we believe that in, in male headship, that, the, 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 that man is the, the loving and submissive leader, and the wife is to be the, or the, the man is the, the loving servant leader, and the wife is to be respectfully uh, submissive to the husband in a marriage because of the creation order, then we have to also believe that God has commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that command has never been recanted. It's never been altered. It's never been amended. It's never been adjusted for cultural standards, ever. So what must we believe about children 
based on what God has commanded and what God has taught us. Number one, children are a blessing. At the end of that sentence, if you're taking notes, right to the, to the bottom sort of right of the letter G, right on the line there, put a dot, like a hard dot, just a dot and that's all, a period if you will. Not an ellipsis, not a colon, not a comma, not a semicolon, not an open parenthesis or an open bracket. Children are a blessing, period. That's it. Not children are a blessing if you can afford them. Look around people. The richest people in the world have the least children. The poorest people in the world have the most children. It has nothing to do with how many you can afford. And for some of us, it might take some time to look around and examine all of the unnecessary expenses we have and then decide how many we can afford. That's what we do. Right? We look at our bank account and we say, well, how many meals could I pay for after I feed my family? Well, this is how many kids I can afford. We, that's not how it works. Notice I did not say children are a blessing when you're ready. You're never going to be ready to lay down your life and sacrifice it for somebody you've never even met, let alone change their diaper. Children are a blessing, not children are a blessing when they're healthy and smart, when their brains operate like every other child. Remember, our dignity comes from our bearing the image of God, not the job that we have the potential to do. I did not say children are a blessing as long as you don't have too many. Ask anybody with two children, hey, which one of those could you do without? Ask anybody with 12 children, hey, which one of those could you do without? Ask somebody who's lost a child, hey, what would you do to have that child back? There's no such thing as too many if God is the one who gives them and who takes them away. That's like saying, we've had too much rain. Children are a blessing, period. No qualifiers. End of discussion. And we should speak of them as such. This, this bothers me as well. They're, they're, children are not the common cold. They're not poison ivy. We should think of them as blessings. Think of them, speak of them that way, refer to them that way, not, oh gosh, I need some time away from these hellions. They're blessings. Can you imagine God sitting in heaven? He's blessed us with these blessings to hear us say, well, I just need some time away from this. They're blessings. Number two, ancient and modern attempts to stop life are unbiblical and do not come from a biblical worldview. It was wrong for Pharaoh. It was wrong for Herod. Why? Because God is the author of life. He says when it begins and He says when it ends. We have no business in the life industry. Now, this brings us into the abortion debate. We have no option, folks. As Christians, we can't say, well, I don't, have, you know, I don't really have an opinion on the subject. We, we can't. 
One of the commandments is, thou shalt not murder. The opposite of that is, you shall make every effort necessary to secure and sustain and make sure life is taken care of. See, there's a positive and a negative to all the commands. And so we have to deal with this debate. We cannot stay neutral. And it wasn't our option to make abortion a political issue. So, listen carefully. This is where our, our worldview is going to get challenged. There are two sides to the abortion debate. Pro-life and pro-choice. Two sides. You have to pick a side. Pro-life or pro-choice. Those, those are the options. Notice that pro Murder is not an option. Nobody has a bumper sticker that says, I'm pro-murder. Nobody believes that. If you go to somebody and say, well, I don't believe in abortion because that's murder. Nobody says, well, I like abortion because I do like murder. Nobody says that. The options are pro-life and pro-choice. So if you are pro-life, that means you are anti-choice. And the pro-choice argument is this. We believe in a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body. Maybe she chooses life. Maybe she chooses to have her child. Is that okay? Do we believe in that right to choose? No. We're pro-life, not pro-choice. We're anti-choice. That's the problem. It's not your body, ma'am. It's not yours. We are made by God in God's image. Well, God's idea, created by God's initiative, by God's power, sustained by God. Our days are numbered by God. Even in procreation, He gets to decide when it starts. We're not ours. I didn't get to pick to be born. I'm not making me live. It's God. He has the patent and the copyright. He put me here. He's going to take me out when He's ready. So I can't say, well, I'm going to do what I want with my body. No, it's not mine. I was bought with a price. I'm not mine. So we, could ha we have to say, I'm sorry, ma'am, but respectfully, it's not your body. You do not have the right to choose to do with your own body. If you are pro-life, you are anti-choice. The worldview issue is the choice. Not the choice that is made. That's the second step. That's a whole other ball game. If they choose murder... That's another issue. But we have a problem not just with murder. Everybody has a problem with murder. We have a problem with the choice that led to the murder. The problem is that you believe you have a choice and as Christians we say, no you don't. We disagree with your right to choose. Because God gives life. Now here's where true biblical worldview clashes with almost everyone you know. Listen closely. Let it digest. Abortion is only one way where we exercise our choice. That's just one. Yes, it's murder. Yes, it's wrong. But it's not just wrong because it's murder. It was wrong before you committed murder because it began to be wrong when you thought you had a choice. It was wrong when a human being thought that they had the right to decide whether a human being should 
live or die. If somebody tells me, hey, I'm going to give you the choice whether a person should live or die, I say, sorry, it's not my choice. I have no dog in that fight because I don't believe in humans' right to choose. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, we read, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Then she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Am I in the place of God who gives them or takes them away? It's not my choice. So what are other ways that we might exercise our choice? How about surgeries and pills where we play God and we tell God when we're ready to have children or how many we will have? Now, when it comes to birth control, we say, oh, no, oh, well, they're not all abortifacient. Now, there are some that destroy a life. They are abortifacient. They kill. That's, that's right out. That's abortion. That, that, that's the second step of murder. But remember, the foundational problem is not murder. The foundational problem is choice. We disagree with the choice because we're pro-life, not pro-choice. We're anti-choice. See, what we do is we go ahead and we begin to plan. We get our blueprints out roll our blueprints out, we begin to draw, we begin to build, and we begin to prepare, and we get all of our ducks in a row so that we can have the perfect life, and we don't realize all of our labor is in vain because we're working in opposition to God. Now again, the smart aleck says, well, if God wants me to have children, He'll give them to me anyway. Walk out in the road in front of a car and say, well, if God wants me to get hit by a car, I'll get hit, and if, I, if He doesn't, I won't. That's tempting God. That's the attitude of a lost person. The seed war is a spiritual war. Satan would love to convince us all that 1.2 children is far too many children. Far, far more than we should have when God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The good news is that the promise of Genesis 3.15 has already been fulfilled it's already come true. The godly seed, Jesus Christ, has already come. He's already crushed the head of the serpent. We are working from a position of victory, and every attempt to thwart God's plan now is just Satan grasping at straws, doing all that he can to take as many people as he can with him and make our lives as miserable as possible in the process. Jesus defeated Satan when he lived according to the law, when he was crucified on the cross, and when he rose victorious over death and the grave and purchased our salvation for us. And we should be reminded of that every time we hear a baby cry. Every time they make a noise, I should remember, hey, my Savior came as a child. My Savior used to whimper and whine. My Savior used to drop his toys. My Savior was born of a virgin. He was the seed of a woman. He was... A man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, he was crucified on the cross, and he was raised victorious king on my behalf. Now, I am a child of the king, and so I don't think like the world thinks. I don't live like the world lives. My whole outlook on life is different than the world. That being said, in closing, we've all sinned and had contrary worldview issues either in the past or now. Like I said, Chew on this stuff. Let it sit and sink in. Confess sin. Ask God for repentance. Study the Scriptures. God's way is best. 
rest in his sovereignty. He's not going to do you wrong, ever. Let's pray.